The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. One of the things this book is inclined to do is encourage older people to seek out hobbies, not to, to do new things. It's important. It's possible. It reignites your cognition. And even more important than that, it opens you up again to the experience of that beautiful cognitive opiate of absorption. Happy Wednesday, everyone. Today, we'd like to offer you another hit of cognitive opiate, courtesy of New Yorker writer Adam Gopnik. All week, we've been talking to Adam about his midlife attempts to master new skills and what he learned about how all of us can get better at getting better at just about anything. Monday, we talked about how Adam learned to draw, a humbling experience for a longtime art critic. And yesterday, we heard about Adam learning to drive for the first time at age 55. You can hear those episodes in your podcast feed, but today, Adam will share what it was like to turn to his mother to learn a skill that she had, but he didn't, baking. One of the first things he realized was that even though we found bread boring to talk about, it wasn't boring to make. Bread though perhaps unrewarding as an analytic subject, is fascinating as a practice. It is probably the case that these two things often vary inversely. Activities that are interesting to read about, science experiments, are probably dull to do, while activities that are dull to read about, riding a bike, are interesting when you attempt them. What makes something interesting to read about is its narrative grip, and stories are, of necessity, exercises in compressing time. What makes something interesting to do is that, through repetition, coordination, perseverance, it stretches time. Stories shorten time, abbreviate the pauses, offer the telling highlights. But the experience of mastery lengthens time. By making each step fully self-conscious, we live within the moment as we otherwise rarely do. You are a cook. You're a long-time pretty serious cook, as I understand it. But especially during the pandemic, maybe like so many people, you you wanted to master a new skill, in your case, baking, which had been something you'd stayed away from. My mom had taught me to cook. My mom's an amazing cook. My mom had taught me to cook, but she had never taught me to bake. And I got interested in baking, as so many people have done. And I went off to study baking with my mother. But in addition to learning to bake, I knew that it was also a way, exactly, of having a conversation with my mother. We're very similar, very much alike. And we've had friction and difficulty over the years. But baking alongside her, saying to her, first of all, humbly, Mom, teach me to bake, was a powerful thing to do. It was, a, it was a, a, an act of peacemaking, not that we were at war, but it was an overt act of saying, you know, I value this thing you do so well, teach me how. Mm -hmm. And then she did. And then she did. And it was uh, wonderful to see in her so many of my own traits, her impatience, her quickness, her over eagerness, her extremely strong opinionated Mm -hmm. side, which I share. And um, it was a real dialogue. And it was also, again, a dialogue about identity, Because my very first memory in life of mastery was watching my mother roll out strudel dough. And I always thought that was something miraculous about that. So learning to do those things, including strudel with her, was a way of 
interjecting and internalizing not just the skill of baking, but the fact of my mother mm-hmm. into my uh, into into myself. Just give a little more background on your mother, because I don't want people to think that baking was her primary activity in life. My mother was one of those women of a particular generation who went on to have an extraordinary professional career. She was a professor of linguistics, and yet she made a big dinner for six kids every night of her life, and always with a homemade dessert, strudel, apple pie, souffles, pitivier, you know, the most ambitious kinds of French things. And that doubleness of her life had always been intimidating. So engaging with her in this was not just about learning to bake. It was about sharing a temperament and learning how to make our shared temperament into something positive and productive. I think one of the insights you share repeatedly in the book is this idea that mastery is much more common than we think. Uh, We tend to imagine that there's just this sort of elite group of geniuses, but uh, there are incredibly skilled people all around us every day, including in the kitchen at home. Yeah, absolutely. Two things I think are, are, are worth worth pointing out. One is, is that, yes, mastery is incredibly widely spread. The example I use in the book is the Turk, the famous chess-playing automaton of the late 18th century, which, to make a very long story short, baffled and, and all of Europe because this machine could play chess and defeat great chess masters. Of course, there was no machine. It was just a chess player hidden in the base of the Turk. But what was fascinating is people used to debate because people had a sense of that, that that might be the solution. And they used to debate, how could you get a genius chess player in that little place, right? You'd have to have trained them from childhood or it was a baby or a, a little person or something. And the answer was that the the guy who invented it, Von Kempelen, had just went from one chess cafe to another in Paris or Baltimore, wherever he was. And he basically said, who here wants 100 bucks and doesn't mind close working conditions? Because his genius, the thing he really understood is that mastery is very much more widely spread in a modern society than we think. You might not be able to get the greatest chess player, but the second best chess player in the chess cafe is a fantastically good chess player. And you put him inside an elaborate Turkish automaton and the atmospherics help turn him into a great chess player. That's a kind of fundamental truth about modernity that we overlook too easily. The other thing is that we slight too readily perhaps the kind of mastery that we associate with domestic tasks. You know, we yeah. don't understand that baking or cooking generally or childcare is just as demanding, magical, painstaking as drawing or, or writing or any of those other things. So I think that that's, that's equally important. And I hope one of the things the book does is to make one aware that things we too easily condescend to as minor arts, or even worse, as women's work, demands just the same degree and complexity of mastery as the things we normally think of as the high or fine arts. When talking about your mother, you did talk about her late style as a baker, that somehow as she got older, something changed in her baking, which brought up this whole idea of how we all have to adapt to our changing bodies and our skills hopefully can change so that we can express ourselves even as our bodies get more challenged. Late style is a thing that has always fascinated me because one of the themes of the book in the simplest sense is you can still do it when you're in your 50s or 60s. And one of the themes of the book is that you can find new things to do. I, I have no hesitation about saying one of the things this book is inclined to do is encourage 
older people to seek out hobbies, not to, mm-hmm. to do new things. It's important. It's possible. It re- reignites your cognition. And even more important than that, it opens you up again to the experience of that beautiful cognitive opiate of absorption. And w- one of the really beautiful things is to see in artists who survived a long time, how if they stayed interesting, they had to invent an entirely new late style. We think about Matisse's cutouts. We think about Titian, the great Venetian painter's last paintings. One of the heartbreaking ones is Mozart, because Mozart's last the K400 pieces all have that quality. It's like the, the pure reduced essence of Mozart. So my mom became a more and more Mozartian baker, I suppose I have to say. She has one thing that she invented, which is the boissant, which is a cross between a brioche and a croissant. And my friend Malcolm Gladwell says, why you have not exploited that commercially with a series <laughs> of mom Gopnik's boissons in every American city he does not understand. And he's right, we should do it. And she just got focused on boissons and bagels, the way that um, Matisse got focused on cutting out blues and, and yellows. And there was something sort of, for kids, there was something sort of exasperating and, and obsessive about it. But there was also something deeply beautiful about it because that pattern of uh, distilling all of our life experience into a handful of aphorisms or visual gestures or boissons and bagels is such a deeply human one. Well, Myrna Gopnik, Adam's mother, may be a sort of Mozart of baking, but it's more modern musical legends, people like Bob Dylan and Jimi Hendrix, who gave Adam his most enduring lessons about mastery. Tomorrow, he'll explain how when we set out to get good at something, we should remember technical virtuosity is never really the goal. The skill we want to master, it seems, is the art of being ourselves. I'm Michael Kavnat, and I'll see you tomorrow.